There are a number of reasons why companies would try to target acquisitions. It could be trying to capture more market share or try to limit market exposure in terms of threat. It could be a whole slew of different reasons why you would want to acquire an asset or actual company. One of the main principles of negotiations is what value you can add to the deal. The companies are growing, but they're not growing fast enough to raise a fund. So they may be growing, talking about like a double digit range of growth, but that's not good enough for investors these days. Welcome to High Leverage, a series of conversations about scaling modern software teams through better tooling and processes. I'm your host, Joe Ruscio, a general partner here at Heavybit. High Leverage is brought to you by Heavybit, a program that helps companies building cloud infrastructure, developer tools, and APIs take their products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you'd like to suggest a guest or a topic for this show, let us know on Twitter, at Heavybit. Okay, welcome back. We've got another episode of High Leverage. Uh, thanks for joining us. Today I've got in the studio a uh, very interesting guest, Elion Masika. Great to have you here. Hi, I'm um, happy to be here. I'm excited to, to talk about our topic today. Yeah, yeah, it's, a, it's one that's very, uh, in some ways, near and dear to my heart. So your current role, uh, you're at GitLab yes. and Director of Partnerships. Yeah, so I've been in GitLab for three years now, actually, next month. Started building basically all of our partnership activities, and now transitioned just a couple months ago into focusing solely on acquisitions. Right, so more of a, uh, I guess, what we cover a corporate development style. Exactly. Yeah. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's really what we're here to talk about today. I mean, I'm very interested in uh, with some of our audience to kind of pull the curtain back a little bit on how M and A. Works or corporate development works from both a, a startup founder, like a dev tool startup founders, or on your side of the table now, on the acquiring company side. Yeah, I think it would be helpful though before we jump right into that. And I've got a bunch of things I want to talk about, but uh, could you give just a quick overview? Uh, I'm super familiar with it, but for any of the audience who's not, mm-hmm. what specifically does GitLab do? I'm going to guess it has something to do with Git. Yes, so it all started with uh, code repo or source code management. But GitLab is your entire DevOps tool. Right, so, it's gone much further than that now. Yes, right? so we started with Repo, as I said before. So you have everything basically that you need for your DevOps lifecycle. So everything from planning your code and your work that you want to be working on, so issue tracker, to code review and code management, to leading into CI, CD, monitoring that's built in into the product. We have making sure your code is secure. With scanning and everything that happens when you build code and then when you push it, so your application, and going back to active remediation for again, enhanced security, and back to the overall analytics of how your team works and operates as a team, as a group. How efficient are you at building and releasing software? Right. So we're covering, like you said, the full DevOps spectrum and the feedback loop from code to test to production to security. Exactly. Yeah, it's been kind of fascinating, you know, having watched you know Sid and company create it and watch it come up, and it's become just a just really like a huge force. So it's it's very cool to have someone here on the podcast to talk about it. So let's just dig in then. So corporate development M and A. What does that mean to you? What is the goal of a company typically? Because I think that would be helpful for some of our listeners. Like, why do companies buy other companies? Well, there are a number of reasons why companies would focus or try to target acquisitions. Could be everything from trying to capture more market share or try to limit market exposure in terms of threat. 
protection. It could be adopting or expanding into different industries or adopting a new business model that they could then leverage to existing products. It could be an equi hire. It could be a whole slew of, of different reasons why you would want to acquire an asset or actual company in terms of a stock equity purchase that you'd want to facilitate. Yeah, there's a range of different outcomes, like you said. So just for instance, just maybe to kind of restate, so you buy a company, like you said, if you were looking to move into a big new market and there's an established player there and it's uh, a very then a deal, I guess it's called accretive, right, where you expect it to pretty pretty quickly start generating revenue yep. back into your, your bottom line revenue. And then you move down into potentially more, and I think especially for a lot of startups, because you know I think more acquisitions tend to get done. You know, there, there's like a distribution, right? Yeah. So you see, I mean, you have the like the headline monster exits, and yeah. and yeah. you know, back ten years ago, uh, you know, two hundred fifty million or whatever was like a monster <laughs> creative yes. exit, and now the numbers like are a lot bigger. Study, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Although those grab most of the headlines and certainly like have a bunch of whatever people are striving for. There actually, there's this like long tail of strategic. Exits or where you're buying a company, I guess to that that's more of a build versus buy, right? Because yes. the strategic guy is not going to immediately start delivering revenue. Yes, so I guess when you look at that specific type of acquisition, you have two. So the build versus buy, or you have a, maybe also a private equity sort of purchase to buy a business that you believe or they believe they can build to a better, more successful business in a very short time frame. We're talking about a year to three years to then spin off again. So I guess when you really focus on that, you have these two types of, of deals that we're talking about. Right. And our approach is also very much along those sort of lines as well. Yeah, and I think just an interesting side note, I mean, uh, left as an exercise to the listener, I mean, private equity has become, uh, in the last three to four years, a pretty interesting force in software as a service. Yes. They identify the growth potential in that industry, and, and of course, they want to capitalize on that with the funds that they have. And also, I think the, the appetite that founders have as well when they're approached with that perhaps bigger offering compared to other software or service companies when they're going head to head. Yeah, and if you put yourself more in the founder's shoes, so you've, uh, you, have, you have founders who've started a company, they've probably raised some amount of funding, they've made certainly Significant progress of some kind on revenue or traction, whatever. How do you see founders typically decide? Like, what causes them to start thinking about potentially uh, uh, exiting through an acquisition versus going on to the next round of financing? Yeah. So I think from my experience and having talked to you know a lot of founders, it could be a, a number of reasons. The first one, if we're talking about a, perhaps a smaller company, it would be some sort of Maybe fatigue that the founding team has around maintaining that company, and of course scaling it. So they may have been doing this for a number of years. They realized that's not exactly what they had in mind or envisioned of what founding a company and growing a company would be like. They maybe enjoy something else, maybe writing code or spending more time on that, as opposed to hiring people and scaling a team and managing an executive team. And they realize if they want or need to be sustainable to go to the next stage, which is what you said, to do another round, that means going bigger, that means more of probably the same things that they perhaps not enjoy as much. So that is probably one of the main reasons to, to go into that. The second reason that I found popular or more frequent is that the company and 
maybe not touched upon much really in the in the talk around this topic is the companies are growing, but they're not growing fast enough to to raise a fund or another round. So they may be growing, which we're talking about like a double digit range of growth, but that's not good enough for investors these days. So they're sort of stuck in that position or of do you want to be sort of like a small business, quote unquote, and maintain as a small office, small business setting, selling our software to a select group or a small audience, or do we sell it off and or join or be part of something bigger and try to get more distribution or get our product into more hands via that channel? Yeah, it's an interesting observation, especially for venture back companies, right? Yeah. Where with yeah, yeah. each subsequent round of financing, there's two things. One is, as you've mentioned, like the set of metrics that are typically applied at that next round, next level, you have to meet those. I mean, there's always exceptions, but generally speaking, you can be growing at a rate that most, you know, as let's say private or bootstrap companies would be ecstatic about. Yeah. But that the venture community, out of necessity of the kind of crazy math that drives that, you know. Can't make work for them, and then I think compounding things. Even if you've kind of just scraped through to that level, or you're, or you're kind of meeting the bare minimums, you know, if you go on and and do that and, and close the round, then at the next level, it's like, well, you got to be confident that you know it's it's this compounding problem, right? Exactly. I don't know what you found. I mean, certainly, I think the Series B is always a very interesting question point. I guess the other thing that, how do you feel about the number of acquirers at kind of each increasing level of Valuation. I have an opinion here, but what do you mean exactly? Well, I guess companies generally have a range of uh, price points they're willing to pay. Yeah, right. Like a, like a deal size that works for one company will not work for a company that's dramatically yes, smaller yes. than it, right? Mm-hmm. And so, I guess the other thing is with each kind of next round of financing you go on, you you sort of reduce the number of potential companies who could acquire yours. Yes, correct. Yeah. So I think it's always like. A healthy for a founder alongside of when staying up their next fundraise strategy, to just have like a gut check and say, "Hey, you know, is this a local maximum that we're at right now?" I'm, I'm a big fan from a founder perspective of exiting at a local maximum. Yeah, I think it's a healthy approach. Also, before you go into the next decision point of doing another round, it's always good to try and validate where are we today, what's our alternative to doing this round. Is it going to be a better outcome if we try to fast forward the next year or two? How could things play out? And maybe this is a better route for us in terms of what we want to achieve together. So say I'm a founder who's decided, hey, I'm not sure about that. A lot of times people talk about dual track process, which means I'm, I'm both going to talk to some investors as well as talk to some corp dev people. You know, we could have a whole discussion over how well that works in practice. But say I'm a founder who's like, hey, I'm going to run dual track or I'm just going to like talk to a few companies. What what do you recommend? How should they start thinking about M and A? Like, how is it different from raising financing? How is it the same from raising financing? Yeah, I think it's very different. If you want to build to a successful acquisition, that's going to be more than just your exit point and completing the deal. The way I think founders should be looking at this is when you look to start a conversation with an acquiring company, you need to understand what you bring to the table and what value you can deliver, both from the, let's say, the 6 to 12 months period, which will typically be your integration period or phase. And then the next point, which is probably more interesting, is what value you can add to that company from that point onward, so after that 12 months, first 12 months of integration. And that's where the key to the answer is, 
if you believe you can provide a lot of value, that's something you also need to invest time into analyzing the acquiring company. How do you fit into that? And trying to think about different value you can bring to that company. So that's more of an exercise and not sort of an impromptu. I'll just start a conversation with an acquiring company and see what you know. You're not going to the supermarket and trying to get a better deal for whatever auction you want to raise for a simple product. It's more a conversation to to lead into. Yeah, and the output of that exercise may be wildly different for different potential acquirers, right? Yes. Depending on, I mean, some companies may find themselves looking at potential acquirers in two different spaces, for instance, and their value to those two different spaces is how you present it, how you frame it, how you calculate it could be totally different, right? Yeah. You know, one of the main principles of the whole concept of negotiations is what value you can add to the deal. It's not just uh, the basis of a deal that we both see, it's what value we can add to that deal. So that's more, of, as, as I said, it's more of a, a complex situation where you need to put time and effort into it. And as, as you said, it will vary drastically between one company to the next and require a whole different set of focuses compared to running a funding round. Right, right, where it's actually, it's in some ways much more abstract. Yes. Also, I think probably at that point, you'll be post one or two rounds, so you'll be more exercised in that. You'll probably have more accessible resources to build to the next round. Your level of fitness for that exercise is, is higher probably than engaging in a, an acquisition conversation. Yeah, the other thing that I've found fascinating, having uh, both sold a company and having, having spent a bunch of time on Corp Dev in a more strategic role at the company that acquired us, is how much, unlike venture financing, where venture capitalists typically are always looking to deploy capital, right? And mm-hmm. like, can they do 10 deals in one week? No. But can they kind of string those together in fairly tight succession? Uh, can they do a couple things at once? The majority of corp dev teams, however, outside of a few exceptions, timing's really critical, right? Uh, because I mean, you could you can have something where um, everything makes sense, everything's lined up, but the company's actually acquiring something else right now, right? Yeah, I think typically when you look at corp dev teams, and and those are probably usually in a bigger setting, in a bigger company setting. So timing is very critical, and depends on what type of deal they're trying to structure. Those will probably also open up to a competition where if I'm the company being acquired, I'll likely try to open that conversation with multiple companies. Sure, you so try that to get timing it. is getting even more sensitive to who's coming first, who, who will have the better offer for me, who will structure a better deal for me and the team. So I think the timing is also a factor in that competition and setting as well. Yeah, I think in that way it's probably somewhat similar to. Any kind of process where you're selling something, right? The like the more concurrent demand you can foment, the higher the the likely price to clear the market. And yeah, I think there's definitely an art to uh, for what you said earlier, going through the exercise of identifying who are the different acquirers, why would it make sense to them, and then trying to get discussions going with them as close to the same time as possible. How do you think through this a rough process? So you've you've gone through that exercise, you've talked to some potential companies to have a acquisition like the stars have aligned and you've got an offer what's the standard form that that offer takes like what's the process run like from kind of the first informal handshake to closing the deal so you're talking about the actual the actual acquisition the final process. part of the acquisition yeah yeah once you've run a really good process you've talked to a lot of different companies you've kind of accurately 
portrayed the integrated value 12 months out. Yeah. And again, there's a lot of ifs here, right? Yes, like, uh, you know, all these ifs line up and you have come to, I guess, informal terms. I'm just going to talk through like what the process, people may not be familiar with what happens next. Yeah, so once you've identified your key focus company or acquiring company, or it could be more, uh, an LOI will be in place, so a letter of intent letter will be of intent, in place. Right. This is kind of similar to like a term sheet. Basically, yeah. It's a legal document that's not necessarily needed, but it's sort of become the standard today to mm-hmm. any conversation that's showing more commitment from both sides to the deal, outlining the rough terms of what we're talking about in terms of what will be given to what party, assets or not, cash or any other capital, at least putting even a range of that. So it's not going to be the final terms. It could be the range of terms that we're talking about. So it could be, if we're talking about a cash acquisition, it could be somewhere that will indicate the range of what we're discussing. We haven't reached final terms, but... Yeah, well, and typically those are issued prior to the kind of like full diligence yes. that you would need to kind of exactly. hone in on an actual price. So it, as we said, this talks about the, the commitment from both sides to engaging into the next level of conversation. So once that sort of the diligence starts or completes after that point, we outline the the final details of the agreement, which will talk about the transition of of goods or not, equity or not, between the two companies, the timeline for the deal to happen. So if there are prerequisites or conditionals that need to happen in terms of a, a product being built or an integration being completed or anything around those two likely scenarios. And then how soon the company will transition. And many times, of course, pretty much in all cases, the deal will consist of milestones for the founding team to or the whole team to be accountable to. So if we have a value, monetary or financial value attached to the deal, the acquiring company would like to attach that to a milestone of what they'll be getting in return. If we said they would be or the company would be integrating or implementing or re-implementing products or features into the acquiring team or running a business, they would have different targets to growing that business. So the milestones would be attached similarly and outlined in the agreement itself. I think beyond that point, once everything is signed, it's just a matter of executing what you've outlined in that agreement. Right. And then transitioning the team. So we're talking about also it could be a whole stage of the HR process of interviewing different team members and trying to identify if they are not sticking together as a whole, where they would go, who will be joining and who won't, what's that going to be for the people not joining, is there going to be a, a soft landing for them to, to look for other jobs. So that's another aspect of the deal to, to look into, so the whole people side of it will be another step of the deal. So first of all, I think it's interesting that you're, you're a lot of times attaching conditions to like, hey, these are the milestones, and then there's often like there are incentives to hit those, yeah. and typically all negotiable. And going back to like you know the more leverage you have from other offers on the table, the easier yeah. it is from a founder's perspective to get some of those relaxed, or you know lacking that, the easier it is to kind of stack those up. And it, it's it's you know is always like a delicate balance. And I think, you know, we talked about this spectrum of of types of exits, and certainly like the giant accretive ones. Typically, I mean, in some cases, it takes months upon months to just integrate HR systems with very yeah. large companies. Uh, whereas you go all the way down the scale, particularly 
you know, smaller strategic exits where we're still interested in integrating the product. Oftentimes, the teams aren't that big. You'll take them along. You get more into the PE style ones, and it gets tougher because part of the transaction is actually taking something that's maybe not profitable because it was built for a venture model. That's not the model it's going to be in anymore. Yeah. It has to be made profitable, and that's usually revolves, unfortunately, like you know, reducing the size of the team that's yeah. actually generating yeah. the revenue. Alongside with a smaller growth target, usually, yeah. like grow slightly slower but more profitably. Has GitLab had anyone dedicated in Corp Dev before? Or are you are you kind of like blazing new ground here? Yeah, blazing new ground. No one really has been fully dedicated. I've been involved, and other people have been involved in the acquisitions that we had in the past. So we had two, three acquisitions, really two major ones to, to talk about: um, Gitter. Which is an online sort of Slack-like environment for communication for open source projects, and Gymnasium, which is dependency management, license management for developers. So those were the two acquisitions that we had. But now, the company has reached a point that we have decided to put that in a specific focus. Obviously, I'm I'm leading on behind that. So there's a dedicated person to this. There's a whole acquisition plan that's going to be also part of. Uh, our make our move to make everything public will probably in the next days will become public as well. So we have an acquisition offer page, but that's made. I've actually yesterday transitioned that into a handbook. So we have an acquisition handbook that will outline exactly what our focus is, what our approach is, what the target companies we're after, what that profile looks like, what they can expect in terms of what they would be getting, why it's even relevant for them to join GitLab, what's great about it. And also, if they really want to go into it, they can then drill down into our process. So, to the nitty gritty, the highest resolution of who does what next and what that looks like, they can have a full picture of what we're doing, how we're doing things. Yeah, I mean, that is fascinating to me. And I, I want to dig in there a bit because historically and certainly any of the efforts on either side of the table I've been involved in, I mean, this is probably one of the more like, I don't say guarded or closely guarded, but certainly like one of the more clandestine activities that companies engage in. And I, you know, part of that is, I don't know, what, what would you estimate is the average number of conversations that a traditional motion has or you expect your motion to have versus actual outcomes, right? Like ratio. So you're talking about number of conversations to deals? Yeah. So if you know, if you end up doing two acquisitions, let's just keep the number math simple. Like, how many different companies do you think you typically talk to to get to two acquisitions? Um, Super probably, ballpark. Probably like ten to twenty. Yeah. So tens, right? So order of magnitude. Maybe yeah. we just keep it that. Like an order yeah. of magnitude. And so yeah, I think often some of it comes from hey, most of these discussions aren't going to go anywhere. Yeah. And rumors about the discussions or news of the discussion that doesn't go anywhere is 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 damaging. So the two acquisitions to date were somewhat opportunistic then. Yes. Okay. And so now there's becoming a very public shift towards a more systemic focus on exactly. that for GitLab. So it's kind of an evolution of the company. Yeah, so GitLab as a whole, you know, we've been growing very rapidly over the last few years and for instance, I'll just give an example, Ballpark. I joined 3 years ago, we were 50 people. 50. 50. Yeah. And now we're over 550. Okay. In those three years, and we're in April today. Our goal is to get to maybe double that by the end of this year. So end of 2019, get to a thousand people. Yeah, it's aggressive. So it's aggressive. <laughs> I think also if you look at the product side of it, three years ago we didn't have most of what we have today. 
So we didn't have the security, the defense side. We just started on CI. Now we're the market leader in terms of offering and strategy. So most of what we have today, we didn't have three years ago. So the product is also being expanded broadly and very, very fast. So what we wanted to do is, and part of what I was doing with the acquisition plan and putting an acquisition plan in place is, we needed to identify what are the priorities of why are we bringing acquisitions to the table and how are they relevant to what we're trying to do as a company, uh, which is move fast and build a lot and fast. So we've identified, let's say, three top priorities of how we look at an acquisition. And if you're not aligned to those priorities, you're probably not a good target or a good fit for, for what we're trying to do. So the first priority, number one, is we're trying to hire talent with specific expertise into one of the product categories that we have today. So we have a good number of product categories in GitLab today, and that would be the number one priority is if we can acquire talent with specific expertise that we don't currently have or don't have enough of in GitLab. So I mean, this is what would you know classically call like an aqua hire. Yes. Right. So you acquire an integrated, cohesive team exactly. that knows each other, knows how to work, has some proven history, as opposed to going off one by one recruiting a similar number of people. Exactly. And the perfect example for that in GitLab would be the acquisition of Gymnasium. So they joined as a team and essentially was the first team to build our secure stage. So that was our security team building our offering. So was that separate from the Gymnasium original product? No. So that product was integrated into GitLab, parts of it, and that was essentially our first offering around secure. So that was an example of that acquihire at GitLab. The second priority is adding functionality that we deem critical to, you could say, build or buy, right? So, can we add that functionality faster by making that acquisition than trying to recruit new people and having them focus on building that product feature or, or a specific set of features? So, that would be a second priority, typical case of build and buy. And the third priority, and it's, I think, very interesting now, a specific time that we're at with DevOps, is building or acquiring companies that will allow us to generate profit in the longer term in product areas that are not necessarily being the most attractive or the heart of the market today. So I'll give an example for DevOps. If you look at DevOps today, the whole source code management has now become a commodity. Everyone has source code management, and no one's deciding on on what developer tool they're going to go with based on just the source code management. The differentiating factor today is what else you have and what else do you bring to the table. And with GitLab, it's a lot more. It's the CI, security, everything around that monitoring. So if you'd go back in time, like two, three years ago, everyone was focusing on source code management and the issue tracker and what functionalities you have within that. So that's become commoditized. So we want to go into the next step of trying to forecast the growth opportunities or growth areas for products and make acquisitions based on that. So together, these three top priorities are relevant ones that dictate our approach to judging and evaluating targets. Yeah, and and especially with that last one, part of that is when you've we've made the decision as it, it seems like GitLab has to, you know, bring a product or rather a suite of products to market, right? You build up an efficient marketing and sales channel. That's able to multiplex across a set of, you know, I'm sure integrated at the right places. And yeah. but once you have that working, you can take an existing product that maybe is like hit the right product note, but as many, many, many of these teams like kind of struggling to 
build a go-to-market. I mean, we you know exactly the, right and say hey, get the distribution, yeah. get the distribution, and and you you have built effectively a, a very efficient distribution machine, and so you can integrate products, and then the end result is better off than where either of the individual parties were. Right, yeah. that's the theory. And I think that's the one of the appeals to to joining GitLab as part of an acquired company is to get that distribution to millions of users instantly. You know, we have over a hundred thousand organizations that are using GitLab today, so you will immediately get that exposure that you wanted and put your product into people's hands. And that's again one of the things that are appealing to people. You know, the model you have is, you know, I think a great way from a corporate perspective to be thinking about it. So what what's interesting, you you made a passing reference though earlier. Let's talk about this uh, handbook and or application because that's that's kind of a new wrinkle, right? Yeah. So. You're talking about our acquisition handbook and, and sort of how that's become. Yeah, but to to the extent that you know historically for this kind of thing, if I think there's a company that my company would be a good acquisition target for, it would make sense. I historically or traditionally have to, well, you know, first of all, it's like, hey, do I know anybody who knows anybody at that company, yeah. right? And if I happen to be lucky enough to be connected to someone who's connected to some kind of VP of something at that company. I can wrangle some kind of warm intro, hopefully, yeah. to the corp dev team. If that's not the case, then my next best option is I go LinkedIn stalking people and try <laughs> to find someone at the company with some kind of title like corporate development, business development, but director of partnerships. And then I literally send them like a terrible LinkedIn message, yeah. right? And that can be really challenging in some ways to even just get access to people. But you're, you're kind of putting that totally on its head. Yes, so we are trying to build more of a, a well-oiled machine to handle and process. To handle inbound, like direct yeah. inbound. Inbound, and also the, the way we internally handle acquisitions. So it's not just surfacing the the whole point and approach of acquisitions at GitLab. It's also surfacing the whole entirety of of how we handle acquisitions. So, like you said, I don't think there's anyone out there that's really put it publicly available. What their outlook is on acquisitions, and we are doing that because I think the whole approach and what I've seen and learned with my time in GitLab is when you are completely visible to to other people in how you work and what you what your goals are. I think that's also one of the key lessons in negotiations is you want to be clear what your goals are, and you want the other side to be clear what their goals are as well, because that will be. The best approach to, to generate the most value for both sides is when we po- both know the goals that each side has. We can maximize for everything. So that goes in line with our approach to really publicize everything that we do around how we look at acquisitions, what the profile is, what we'll be offering you as a team that will be acquired, how that's going to look like in terms of the transition into GitLab. And I think that's unique in a point that we want to make it Easier for you to process the idea of an acquisition, easier for you to handle or envision what that's going to look like as an acquired team or even a team member that's looking at this. You will have more confidence in what we do and the whole process of it when you know a lot more about it than having it a black box like it typically is today, where you start a conversation, you don't really know how to start it, you don't really know what's the middle point, what's the end point going to be like. You just want to get to a, a deal. So we tried to disambiguous that and get to a more outlined public view of that for everyone to consume. So one thing that's interesting to me, you know, especially working with companies who go through these conversations and my own experience, 
I do think one thing that will will be really valuable about that to entrepreneurs is the wide variance of experience you have with companies, and and I think it it generally tends to, at least in my experience, align with how much of this activity they've done, right? Because especially I think the more kind of acquisitive you get, and the more that becomes part of you know your your overall strategy. The more you are incentivized to become good at it and and get to know quickly, maybe that's like because you know we I've seen some companies that are super good and they they can get to a no pretty quickly or at least a not right now, and then when the time is right, they can turn the crank and run a process. I've seen other companies where it takes a ludicrous number of meetings on a very what is the, was it theoretically a very small deal. To decide not to do it, and you say it just doesn't even make sense that you spent forty hours of your VP's time on, on this no, tiny deal no, you ended yeah. up not doing. How are you, you and your team, thinking about the key? What are the most important parts of the process for you? The focus on and and what kind of meetings do you have like a schedule where you escalate from your team into the product area yeah, leaders. Yeah, I can talk about the process definitely. Yeah. So I think it's also maybe a good lesson to um, other founders that are. Curious about what's the best way for them to pitch and position their offering to an acquiring team. So, when you start a conversation, the typical, and we have a template for that, there'll be typical intake for the first conversation, exploratory, to get the current state of the company. That will be the first step in the process, typically done by me, just getting to know the team, the whole structure of the team, what the products are available out there today. And the funding and everything, the whole history about the company, and where they are today in terms of business, in terms of customers, growth, and the size of the team itself. So I think that's number one. The next step is to, and that's really the point that, that to put emphasis on, is what's the joint messaging and the joint offering that we are able to build together. And that goes to the point I was making before with founders. So you have an offering, a typical corporate process, you'd have an offering memorandum that you prepare in larger deals maybe of what you bring to the table and how that could benefit the acquiring company if you were to seek out acquirers. So I think that's critical in any sort of conversation that you have around acquisitions is you want to start outlining what that could look like. If we're at GitLab specifically talking to a company, that would be the, the second call, would be a product call with some of our product teams, members that will dive into their product, the acquired company target product, what features are most interesting for us to integrate, and start outlining right off the bat a quick integration roadmap. So if we were to take all these features, how quickly can we integrate them into GitLab and what is that going to look like? The second stage for that conversation would be to start outlining what other new functionality that company or that team would like to focus on and build within GitLab now that you have so many other parts of the DevOps piece or the DevOps pie maybe that you could leverage and being part of that one cohesive tool. So that would be the second part of it. And at that point, after that conversation, the product conversation, we have an internal review where we do an evaluation and make a quick decision this is the second point in time where we're making decisions. The first one will be after the current state conversation, the first intro call, if you will. And the second one is after that product dive and trying to scope out an integration roadmap. That will be a, a more critical junction to a decision of yes, no, or not now. 
basically, if we move past that, we will start the diligence process into the engineering side and the finance and legal side to move to a quick acquisition. The overall goal is to complete an acquisition, let's say, within four weeks, so a month. Four weeks. Is that from the first call, or is that from? Yes. Okay. Wow. And we're, we're we're just starting, so everything yeah. is is fresh with us, <laughs> and we're the process that I'm talking about. It's a new process, and, and like everything else with with GitLab, we iterate, and yep. this will change over time. So when you go visit the handbook, if you go today, and if you go a month or two from now, it, it will process and and it'll evolve. It's a living organism. Yeah, uh, yeah. Like everything else. No, that that makes sense. I think one thing is kind of interesting, you know, from what you just described, and and I'd expect this. So, I mean, for people thinking about uh, going through this process, and and to your point, and putting the plan together, it's there is this like two stage kind of decision where one is like, okay, we we see these ten deals, and we're trying to figure out which maybe. Two to really look at. Mm-hmm. So that that first stage or two is pretty important. It's kind of getting past that first hurdle, yeah. Then to get into the actually the real diligence, right? Yes, correct. Yeah, so it's um, hard hard to overinvest up front on that. Yes, it's hard because you need to start getting more technical people involved to start doing the evaluation. So the better it is, the the if you want to maximize the value of the conversation, it would be to start simulating and putting time and thought into what the joint value proposition could look like. That will make it easier for both people on both sides because you've going through this exercise as well as a founder. And for me, as someone that's doing corp dev, it would be easier to digest and try to understand what's the potential that we have here instead of trying to reverse engineer and bring people in to start doing the diligence and have them think about the integration plan. Yeah, well, hey, this has been a lot to think about. I'm so glad uh, you came by today. I think you know we're at time now, but I definitely look forward to checking out, you know, go check out the handbook and and look forward to hearing back maybe in the future as to how it's going. I think we definitely want to chat about that at some, some future point. Definitely. Hopefully we'll get some uh, good news in the next few weeks and maybe we can check in uh, a little bit of time from now. All right, great. Thanks for listening to this episode of High Leverage. If you'd like to suggest a guest or topic, let us know on Twitter at HeavyBit. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit heavybit.com to check out our library. It's an amazing resource for insights on developer sales, marketing, product, and general management from leaders in our community.